Hello and welcome back to the Historians Magazine podcast. Uh, today I am joined by historian, author and content creator Beth Reed. Beth, how are you doing? I'm doing good, thanks. How are you? Yes, I'm doing all right, thank you. I do sound a little bit hoarse if anybody is concerned, um, but hopefully it'll clear through the episode. Um, so today we are talking about the Scottish Wars of Independence, specifically um, noble women's roles within those um, those wars. I guess a good place to start would be, can you just give us a brief intro to the Scottish Wars of Independence, sorry, when, who, what, where, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely, no worries. Um, so the Scottish Wars of Independence was a period of quite intense warfare um, in Scotland um, from the late 13th to the mid to late 14th century it's roughly from 1296 to 1357 that it occurred although it does kind of extend beyond the 1357 period it's a very sort of hard to define um time of warfare i suppose it extended this more the conflict between scotland and england does kind of extend beyond that but the actual scottish wars of independence we can pin to 1296 to 1357 roughly on account of treaties that were arranged on account of events that happened that's where we've pinned it to um so the wars began and um, they're initially called the scottish wars of succession by some historians um, and they began over a succession crisis in scotland um, the King of Scotland, Alexander III, um, dies quite suddenly, uh, having he didn't have any heirs, um, like his own children. Uh, all three of his children had died actually quite recently before that, so it was quite a tragic period for the Scottish monarchy. Um, Alexander dies, his nearest heir is his granddaughter, who is an infant, she's called Margaret, maid of Norway, and she's the daughter of the King of Norway. Um, so Margaret's the new heir, but she's still very young. So what then happens is Scotland goes into a period um, of interregnum where it's guardians that take over. Uh, they rule Scotland while Margaret is growing up, essentially, in Norway. Um, at the same time, you've got Edward I of England, who is obviously a very successful diplomatic and militaristic king. He's very involved and very invested in what goes on in Scotland because the king that had died, Alexander, was his brother-in-law. So Edward feels as though he's kind of got a duty to be involved in settling the succession in Scotland. It makes sense. He's got a reputation for you know diplomatic success. He's already mediated for other European kings. So it makes sense for Edward to be involved. Um, unfortunately, Margaret Maid of Norway dies en route over to Scotland um, quite suddenly. There's rumours that she's been poisoned, all sorts of rumours that, you know, that it's bad intentions behind it. But realistically, she probably just died of illness um, on her way over. Uh, and Scotland, again, has a total succession crisis. And this is the point where Edward really swoops in. And he is very central in this uh, process called the Great Cause. It's a legal process to basically choose a new king of Scotland. Um, there's three main competitors, um, one of which is John Balliol, who ultimately becomes the king of Scotland um, as per Edward's sort of mediation, his judgment. John Balliol gets called the puppet king a lot because people sort of argue that Edward I controlled him, that he... Um, had John, you know, do, doing what Edward wanted for Scotland, essentially. John did swear fealty to Edward. Um, he had to go and report to the English court, all this sort of stuff. Um, and then in 1296, when John and his court do essentially make an attempt to stand up to Edward by entering an alliance with France, which is never good to do against England, because England and France in the medieval period, great times. Um, Edward then basically invades Scotland, forces John to abdicate and announces Scotland as a vassal of the Kingdom of England. 
And so begin the Scottish Wars of Independence for the next however many decades. Um, basically just a, a tussle for uh, sovereignty, nobles seeking for ambition. Um, you know, you've got the Balliols, they continue to try and claim, you know, their right to the throne throughout the period. Then you've got the Bruces, obviously Robert the Bruce, really famous figure, another famous figure, William Wallace, all involved in this sort of, yeah, tussle for sovereignty, ambition, all that sort of stuff. So it's this continuing Anglo-Scottish warfare essentially for the next several decades and just really defines the period in Scottish history. So Awesome. That was a really nice little uh, um, succinct way to describe the, um, the wars then. So thank you for that. No um, worries. A common theme in your work and in your the article that you've written for the medieval edition of the magazine is that of sort of strong female leadership. How important do you think that was to the, um, I guess the, to the, to, I guess the Scottish side of this conflict? Yeah, so that's a really good question, and it's quite, um, it's quite a tricky one to answer because the issue with, um, like the study of women during this period, as with the study of women in the medieval period, period in general, is the lack of primary evidence that there is. Um, however, what we do have for women during the Scottish Wars of Independence is. There is a succinct role that they have during the period. It's not, you know, it's not the leadership that you see figures such as Robert the Bruce, William Wallace, John Common having. It's not, you know, you're not leading the army into the battle. You're not, you know, spearheading these great treaties and declarations. It's not these symbols of legitimacy being employed by these men to, you know, stake their claim, to improve their, you know, claim to the throne, etc. You don't see that. But however, they do play a very important role in the wars themselves. I mean, there's a period in the 1330s where you've got three separate um, sieges and all three of these sieges, the castles are defended by women. Um, and it's sort of, there's a pattern in the Scottish Wars of Independence that definitely indicates that women being involved in warfare was not unheard of. Um, I think quite often people have this sort of misconception of medieval women as just being totally, like, uninvolved. You've got, you know, there's, there's, uh, a lot of historians will refer to the public sphere and the private sphere and that women were in the private sphere. It was all about religion. It was piety. It was charity. It was you know, interceding on behalf of criminals with their husband. It was all that sort of stuff. But that, and while those were absolutely rules held by women and absolutely really important areas for them to have held, you know, ownership in, they also had involvement in the public sphere. I don't think there's such a separate, you know, thing going on. These things are definitely interchangeable. Um, and in the wars of independence, certainly you see this involvement of women in the warfare. There's examples that women are viewed as acceptable targets of warfare. I mean, you've got three women leading sieges. That's because their castles are being attacked. They're viewed as an acceptable target. Um, you've got, in the earlier days of Edward I's attempt to subjugate Scotland, you've got various attacks on different boroughs where it's recorded that women and children were targeted and were slaughtered as you know targets of warfare. Um, so it's this period where women are definitely involved in the warfare over. They're not necessarily, you know, leading battles into army, but they're viewed as targets and thus they have to respond to that as well. Um, and in terms of noble women, there's certainly this role where noble women, you know, they're managing the estates, they're managing the household, especially when you consider how often husbands aren't present if they're, you know, away on a campaign, if they're at court, if they're on diplomatic roles. So who's leading the ma who's managing the estate? Who's who's managing the household while they're gone? It's gonna be the elite women because they are superior, they because they are of the elite class. So if you're managing your household, you're gonna defend your household as well. You're gonna be part of that, not necessarily picking up a sword, but 
certainly managing your resources and managing the men of the garrison defending your castle managing your you know your tactics all that sort of stuff so yeah there's definitely evidence of this happening during the scottish wars of independence and i think it's a really interesting theme to like pull out i think there's definitely more there than has really been appreciated and it's definitely picking up a lot more in academic circles there's a lot of um, work going into this period which is just fantastic but i do feel that the popular understanding of the wars completely like negates the role of women it's it's such a popular um subject in scotland loads of people know about the scottish wars of independence it's really popular but quite often people are like really shocked when you talk about oh the, a woman did this a woman did that so yeah i'm really passionate about trying to kind of like i don't know raise awareness for that essentially yeah i think that's a great point and i think it is a wider misconception about medieval history in general across the world obviously me and you both um spend quite a lot of our time talking about women in the medieval period because um, you know, like you, I believe there is a there's a wealth of knowledge there that we've maybe not tapped into yet, or um, you know, there hasn't been the um the academic um work done on it yet. Um and I think another thing that is a kind of common misconception is when there is a a woman doing something that is kind of outside of the expected, is it's considered quite anecdotal sometimes, or like, oh, that was the exception. That doesn't happen when really is you know you show through your work and and you know other historians as well that it isn't the exception it, it is the rule quite a lot of the time um obviously if we take my favorite Eleanor of Aquitaine she went on crusade yeah. <laughs> I have to get her involved in every episode yeah. I do um you know she went on crusade that is that true that is an exception but it was an undertaking that she took as an individual not as an extension of a husband so yeah I think it's it's well worth doing, if that makes sense. It's not um, um, it's not like pointless research. It's very, very interesting. You know, 50% of the population, you know, they deserve to have their stories told as well. A bit more generally now, how much, this is a huge question to be fair, how much do you think that the, the Scottish Wars of Independence, how much do you think, um, how much of an effect do you think that had on Scotland's kind of national identity, even up to today? That's a really, that's a really big question. Um, that yeah, it's a really interesting one. I think um obviously in the context of current events where there's obviously this um increasingly popular movement for um Scottish independence, um I think a lot of people like to compare it to the Scottish Wars of Independence, or you know, there's reference made quite a lot to figures from the Scottish Wars of Independence, like especially Wallace and Bruce. They're, you know, absolutely iconic figures. Um and Edward the First is this sort of like pantomime sort of baddie I think to a lot of people that don't really know the actual political ins and outs of the wars which is fine that's totally fine you know that's some that's just the understanding of it and that's absolutely grand if that's what people you know initial perception of um the wars is but I do think that you know there's such a succinct difference between the Scottish wars of independence and the current movement for independence and current themes of identity um you know in the 14th century the concept of independence or this sort of patriotic like freedom you know William Wallace Braveheart sort of thing that like I mean some historians might disagree with me but I would argue that was not the case and I think you start to see initial symbols of like nationhood and symbols of nationality during the wars of independence you know like things like the declaration of our growth where there's this really clear statement of we are a sovereign nation like this is our king, this, we are the people, Like we'll choose who our king is, all that stuff, which is absolutely fascinating. But, you know, behind that, 
that document's been written because there's loads of political drama going on in the background over what the Bruce is writing and he's having to use this document to basically kind of support his claim as a king. So I think there's I think there's a big difference. I think, I mean, Scotland as well, Scotland's history. It wasn't this, you know, really clearly defined kingdom. It's, you know, similar to England, if you look at the history of England, where it's like multiple kingdoms and then eventually they become England. Scotland was very similar. It's, you know, multiple sort of tribal areas. You've got, you know, I mean, taking it way back, you've got Dalriata, you've got the land of the Picts, you've got Kingdom of Strathclyde, you've got Northumbria, that comes all the way up to Edinburgh. So it's this actual sort of, you know, Scotland doesn't really exist as such. I mean, even when you're going into towards the wars of independence, Alexander III, the king that died and kicked off all the wars, he spent, you know, a considerable time of his reign trying to extend his royal authority to the west of Scotland, you know, over to the west coast. And this isn't, you know, this isn't the far thrown off Western Isles. This is like Glasgow, Greenock, um, you know, air, all that sort of area. He spends a lot of his time really trying to extend royal authority there because there's this kind of, there's a really strong Norse um, hold over these areas and a lot of the Western Isles actually still belong to the Norse. Um, I mean, places like Orkney, that was held by the Norse until the 15th century. So there's this, yeah, there's this, the, the proper, you know, Scotland, like this is the map of Scotland, this is who we are. I would argue really wasn't a thing. I think a lot of the wars of independence was about political ambition. It was about dynasty. Um, very, I mean, similar to a lot of like feelings that nobility would have had in England as well. It wasn't this, oh, we are England. It was, no, I'm the Earl of this and this is my dynasty and this is my ambition. I think it's very similar. So I think in today's time, a lot of people will like to hark back to the wars of independence and use it, you know, as a symbol of nationality. However, I think the concept of independence was very different back then as to what it is now. So in a sense, I think it can actually almost be quite unfair to use the two together because I think it was very different circumstances and very different, um, a very different form of identity, I suppose. I'm sure there's lots of people that will listen to this that will be like, Beth, absolutely no chance. You are talking rubbish. I disagree with you. And that's totally fine. But that's what I would, that's what I would argue anyway. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense to me. Um, I think you make a good point comparing it to England in the sense that's obviously a bit more about what I know in, you know, you've got yeah. Wessex, East Anglia, Northumbria, Mercia, you know, we will apply King of England to people like Alfred the Great, who wasn't, never thought themselves as Kings yeah. of England. You know, it was a very different political situation. And I think, I guess the parallel in my mind for Scotland and then that, you kind of, that national idea to England is, is the Hundred Years' War. A lot mm-hmm. of England's idea of, of nationhood comes out of that conflict. But again, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Do you think it's more us as 21st century historians are looking, not maybe us personally, but we're looking back and applying our ideas to things like the Wars of Independence? Do you think it's rather than them, you know, 14th century people looking forward, it's us looking back and applying yeah, I, I would say so, definitely. I think um, I, I think it's not even just in terms of independence as well or national identity. I think, I mean, going back to what we were talking about, um, the study of women, I think I, I absolutely adore researching medieval women, but it's so important to maintain that level of, okay, there wasn't, you know, the level of equality there is today. I mean, obviously, there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of equality today, but there wasn't that level then and because that's how it was it's difficult to like you can't create these like like unbelievable like feminist like stories of equality and power and stuff 
because that wasn't that wasn't the case. Yes, it absolutely was the case that I mean, I I firmly would argue that elite women had much more influence and authority than they are understood to have, or that they are popularly understood to have. I definitely believe they had a lot more input. They weren't these, you know, sort of submissive background characters who just like went to church all the time. I'm sure they did many other things, which there is evidence for. However, like you've got to really separate that from our, you know, our perceptions of, you know, like strong women and our perceptions of like, I don't know, suppose more feminist kind of movements that there is today, which are all fantastic. And I love all that, but it's really important not to like project our like our society's you know acceptance onto 14th century society because it was the 14th century it's going to be different to what we see now and I think it's similar for like yeah like like you know sort of national identity I think is the same I think we can quite often like and I think especially the Scottish Wars of Independence is such an emotive one I think we can quite often you know put like our you know the current sort of symbols of identity and national identity and the movement we can kind of be like, oh yeah, Robert the Bruce was a freedom fighter. William Wallace was a freedom fighter. Robert the Bruce was going after his own ambition and going after his own priorities. And yes, I'm sure at some point that turned into, okay, sovereignty for my kingdom. It's not this thing of, oh, freedom for Scotland, freedom for the people that stuff like Braveheart and Outlaw King like to kind of push in the movies. Um, but yeah, so there's definitely a very big difference. And I think it's really important as historians that we don't, you know, project our ideals or our political beliefs onto, you know, something that occurred 700 years ago. Um, yeah, so definitely. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's a huge, it's a huge thing with history that I've learned anyway, is, you know, like you said, don't, you can't apply 21st century morals to, the, you know, you can't even do it for the 20th century, let's be honest. Yeah. So it's, it would be ignorant of us to, to look at, say, Edward the First and be like, yeah, terrible person, war criminal, all this stuff. And it's like, yes, if that happened now, absolutely. But it didn't. It happened, you know, in the late 13th century. So, you know, William Wallace potentially making a skin belt is horrible. But in, in the 14th century, that was probably the talk of the town and it was probably really, really cool. But, yeah, it's um, it's interesting, isn't it, how we, um, how we look back. And for me, anyway, I, I view history in, I try to view it in isolation with itself. I don't, it's really easy to view history. You know, let's take, you know, again, the Scottish Wars of Independence. We know what the result is. You know, we know what happens at the Battle of Bannockburn. We know what happens with the um, Treaty of um, Edinburgh and Northampton. We know what happens at the end. But in 1296, when it kind of kicks off, we, we don't. So reading history, you kind of have to forget that the end happens, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. But it, it does make it quite difficult, doesn't it? It does, it does make history difficult as a subject because you have to put your blinkers on. And, you know, yeah. we know Harold Godwinson dies at the Battle of Hastings, but mm -hmm. you can't read the, the rest of that story with that information. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's certainly, certainly makes our job i guess as historians quite quite interesting mm, definitely yeah um so a little bit of fun questions now the ones we kind of ask everybody um <laughs> just to make it just a little bit of fun like i said first one is if you could go back in time where would you go and why 
I actually have like I have such like a specific answer for this, and I'm so proud because I'm normally so bad at answering <laughs> questions like that. But um, go for it. I'm probably gonna forget the exact date now because it's you know on the spot. But um, I'd go back to I think it was the 20th of February. I might be wrong. It might be the 10th of February, and I'm getting my 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 dates mixed up. But let's go with February I'll go back to February 1306 at Greyfriars Kirk and Dumfries and um, this is where Robert the Bruce murders John Common who is his opponent the, these guys have a major rivalry that's gone back you know quite a long time they're both young ambitious nobles they both have a claim to the throne of Scotland so they've been like button heads for years by this point um, and Robert the Bruce murders John Common um, at the altar of the Church of the Greyfriars in Dumfries. And um, this is like such a major moment in the Scottish Wars of Independence because it essentially forces like Robert to seize the throne because he's literally just murdered someone in a church. So he's excommunicated and it happens to be a claimant to the throne of Scotland who's also a very popular individual. John Common is like, you know, one of the heads of a major major powerful family in Scotland the commons they're so powerful and Robert's just murdered one of them and I mean not only that John Common played such a huge role in the wars of independence before this point and um, there's this battle the battle of Roslyn in 1301 I believe um where you know John Common defeats an English army people never hear about that battle because he's presented as the villain because he's Robert's opponent because Robert's the ultimate winner anyway digressing there but Robert yeah so Robert murders John Common um, it's this whole debate of was it murder in hot blood? Had they had an argument and Robert just strikes out and it's an immediate, oh God, what have I just done? Was it premeditated? A lot of people argue that it was premeditated because you know it essentially clears the way to the throne for Robert. I am one of the people that would argue, nah, definitely not premeditated. Why in your right mind would you murder someone in a church knowing it would get you excommunicated when you have the intention of claiming the throne? Why would you do that? That's just like, the stupidest thing you could do. So I would argue that they've obviously had an argument and something's been said and Robert's lashed out and has had a total, oh God, what have I done? Rushes off to Glasgow, is absolved of excommunication by the Bishop of Glasgow, seizes the throne of Scotland. So begins the next part of the Wars of Independence. So I, yeah, that that's one of the things I'd love to go back. I'd love to see what happened. Did they argue? Was it premeditated? Did Robert even kill Common? Did someone else kill him? what actually happened I would love to go back and see that and be able to see it for myself and answer some yeah really big questions about a really important event in the wars of independence for sure awesome I had a I had a feeling you were going to pick that because I know we've spoken about that before (laughs) okay on the spot now if you could go back and you could interject and change the outcome of that would you or would you just let history be history I think I just let it be history because I mean it it kickstarts a very difficult period for Robert the Bruce difficult in terms of what he's got to do the opponents he has to overcome but also a very personally difficult period for him and where he loses you know multiple family members his wife his daughter and his sisters are imprisoned in England for eight years it's a real struggle for him he literally has to start from the bottom up again and he while he's the king of Scotland so but he, he does come out on top he does you know he you know, he does come out, he has a very difficult, I, mean, I think a lot of people like to think, oh, Bannockburn, that was it, Robert wins, boom, amazing. But he defeated Edward II, but it wasn't over. I mean, there was still another over 10 years of his reign where he's, you know, really fighting with his own nobility to still keep continually saying, no, I'm the King of Scotland. And obviously John Common's murder probably haunts him for the rest of his reign. But ultimately he dies as a very powerful king 
and his son becomes king. The Bruce dynasty ends with his son, but then that's where the Stuart dynasty comes from. Robert's grandson then becomes king and so begins, begins the Stuart dynasty, who are descendants of Robert the Bruce. So, you know, that's how it goes. I wouldn't change it. I think it is really interesting to think about, though, if, you know, if I were to interject and say, oh, John, stab Robert because he's going to stab you and say John Common kills Robert the Bruce. I don't think there would be a hugely different thing would happen. I think it would be John Common would then be like, right, I'm seizing the throne and we would now be celebrating King John Common, not King Robert Bruce. That's who we would, that would, that's who our national hero would be. So it's really interesting to think about. I think, I think John would have had a better go at it in the initial years because he had this, you know, massive common support who Robert has to spend the first, you know, few years of his reign defeating. So I think Common would have a better go at it, but I think he would still have the same battles with the English. There still would have been an equivalent battle of Bannockburn. There still would have been, you know, Treaty of Edinburgh. So it's interesting to think about if, you know, if it was John that, you know, it's like it's like uh, in Star Wars, like who shot first, Han Solo or Vito, do you know what I mean? It's like literally the exact same, Common or, or Bruce. I think it would be yeah, interesting to see. However, if I was there, I would I would just watch it and take notes and then write like a best-selling book about it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I mean, hand shot first. I'm going to put my stall out there. But, oh, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, I'm not usually one for um, alternate history, but I think with things like that, obviously we can't go back in time and change it, but I think it would be interesting because, like you said, we would have we would have a Bannockburn probably with John Common. And I think the biggest factor in that for me is Edward II rather than and i'm not taking away from the scottish victory oh, yeah. i'm blaming the english nobility for their arrogance and um you know things like that but bannock burns a, a, a topic for another for another day i guess um <laughs> but um to flip that question on its head if you could bring anybody through to 2023 who would you bring and what do you think they would gain out of being around now oh man that's such a difficult question who would i bring through 2023 i think it would be really i think it'd be really interesting to bring through a royal a, a member of the of the scottish royal family whether that's the the bruce dynasty or the canmore dynasty or this or the stuarts whoever it is i think it would be really interesting to bring them through and just to hear what they think of everything because I mean, I was at um, Dunfermline Abbey recently and Dunfermline is, I mean, in my opinion, probably Scotland's most underrated medieval historic site. I would highly recommend visiting. It is absolutely incredible. And Dunfermline, I think especially we're talking about Robert the Bruce, Dunfermline, Robert the Bruce really built this power, well, it was already a power centre, but Robert utilised this power centre as like a massive symbol of legitimacy for his reign. He has this really huge like mausoleum like for like dedicated to him and his nobility you know people all associated with the Bruce regime but then Dunfermline gets absolutely wrecked during the reformation so it's like the church is literally split in half you've got the medieval side on the west and the Victorian updated version on the east and all of these tombs to all these kings and queens and you know, mighty nobles of medieval Scotland, they're gone. Like, they're they are just gone. They're, their tombs aren't there. You know, they're there somewhere, but they don't have, you know, you think about Westminster Abbey or Saint-Denis in France, and it's these incredible medieval mausoleums with all these, like, you know, box tombs, double tombs, absolutely elaborate, just total, total power. 
that's what Dunfermline looked like, but it's nothing like that now because all these tombs are gone. So I think it would be interesting to bring someone like Robert or someone you know who was so key in his government, like Thomas Randolph or something, bring them to the 21st century and just see what they think of that because that's like their that's their life work, I suppose, and it's gone. So it would be quite interesting to hear from them their perspective their perspective on that. I'm sure it'd be a very disappointed perspective, but I think it'd be really interesting to hear and um, and to maybe even hear what sites like that would have looked like like what would have that part of Dunfermline Abbey actually looked like in its heyday I think that could be quite interesting yeah it's interesting most people I've spoke to have brought somebody forward to to show them how great something is or how their their work has evolved um but it's interesting to hear kind of the other way around to show look what we absolutely obliterated um because yeah. I I find the, the reformation one of the saddest things in in British history, it it bothers me to my core. Um, not because I'm 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 Catholic or anything like that. It's just like you said, it's the it's the destruction of history which Absolutely. is just utterly devastating. Yeah. Um, and we're obviously very fortunate that we have Westminster Abbey um, because you know, like you said, a lot of the a lot of the I grew up near like Bolton Abbey and places like that, and there's nothing there. There's nothing yeah. there at all. And these are, you know, giant centres of, of historical importance that have just been essentially deleted from the map. So, yeah, it would be, um, I think anyone from the 14th century would be utterly astounded by yeah. anything anything we, we showed them. But, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a cool, cool way to look at it. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. So... Another thing that I like to get people to do is if you could squash one kind of misconception or, you know, what's one interesting fact that you wish people knew about kind of medieval Scotland? It can be about anyone, anything. It doesn't have to be Scottish Wars of Independence. But if you could change the narrative on something, what would it be? I mean, you probably already know the answer to this because I go on about this a lot on my Instagram page, but definitely um, the Wolf of Badenoch. <laughs> um, so... The Wolf of Badenoch was Alexander Stewart. He's called. He was a nobleman in late fourteenth. We'll go with late fourteenth century Scotland. Um, he was the son of a king. He was the son of Robert II. One of five sons. I struggle to keep up with the Stuart boys. There's so many of them. Um, one of five sons, and he became. You know, he was Lord of Badenoch. This is the northeast of Scotland, so kind of near today, where you look at places like Aviemore, like really popular areas. That Quinnell region, like Strathby and Badenoch, was like his domain. That was that was where he had the power. Um, he became Earl of Buchan. He married the Countess of Ross, and subsequently had power over Ross, which is a huge earldom to the northwest of Scotland. Like this guy was like so powerful. Um, he didn't necessarily do the best job of being such a powerful magnate. He made some kind of stupid mistakes. You know, he didn't manage his power in the way that um other that he he could have done. But there's this um there's this thing in history where like, in Scottish history where the Wolf of Badenoch is just like he's called his nicknames the Wolf of Badenoch. That said, that tells you all there is. He's just, you know, he's really vilified and he's not really remembered for anything other than one event that happened in 1390, uh, 1390, sorry. So in 1390, this was kind of the result of about, I'm gonna say about four years of pressure. I might be getting my dates wrong there, but 
it basically has two brothers. One of them is the, the regent for Scotland. And one of them is this uh, man called Robert Stuart, Duke of, he's not the Duke of Albany at this point, but he will later become the Duke of Albany. And he is called the un, the king that was never crowned. He's like one of the most ruthlessly ambitious politicians of medieval Scotland. He's very good at his job. Um, and Alexander, I think, gets compared to him a lot. And I think that also happens because Robert and Alexander, like, are you know there's there's obviously beef between these two brothers in the 1380s leading up to this event in 1390 where Albany well he's not called Albany yet we'll sit with Robert Stewart he is basically pushing Alexander out of power in the northeast and a lot of people will say this is because there was all these complaints about Alexander and it's all these complaints about lawlessness in the northeast and violence in the northeast they're Alexander utilized, um, they're called Catarans. So these were uh, it's from a it's from a Gallic word. So these were Gallic war bands, essentially. Um Alexander utilized them. They were like, you know, he used these guys, these were his a way of keeping, you know, control of power. Um, however, it's totally there's this thing that happens in the sort of, you know, from this period is where you've got this north-south divide begins to appear in Scotland. So Scotland, obviously Scottish Highlands are really famous. Scottish Lowlands are really famous. The Highlands, there's this sort of like romanticised conception of like, oh, the wild Highlander. And, you know, they speak a different language. They wear a kill. They're a bit different, all that sort of stuff. And whereas the the south, like central to south of Scotland is much more civilised and do 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 And this sort of, you know, this this divide happens, it begins in the 14th century. Prior to this point, the majority of these nobles in Scotland spoke Gaelic. Everybody spoke Gaelic. They spoke, you know, Latin, French. They spoke Gaelic as well. That's just how it was. And they would have had similar customs. They would have had, you know, these Catarans, these war bands. Who wouldn't? Who didn't have a war band then? Who didn't have a military following? It's just that they're written differently. You, know, a historian, will write about some southern lord having oh, a military retinue. That's the same as having a Gaelic war band. That's exactly the same. And there's this. Yeah, there's this thing with Alexander where he's really vilified over this, you know, obviously tense relationship with him and his brother Robert, who happens to be in a position of power, who's working to remove Alexander from power. Um, is he removing Alexander from power because there's genuine concerns about lawlessness in the Northeast? That might have been the case. There might have been issues with Alexander's leadership. He did make mistakes. He did do things that weren't, you know, in his best interest. However, for me, there's definitely a thing here where Robert is just such an ambitious noble and is we brothers powerful. So what's he going to do? Try and, you know, pull him down a peg or two. And it basically culminates all this political pressure from Robert and then from the Bishop of Elgin as well. It culminates in this, Bishop of Murray, sorry, it's Elgin Cathedral, not the Bishop of Elgin, Bishop of Murray. It culminates in this pressure on Alexander where he basically lashes out and burns down Elgin Cathedral, right? Not good. That's not ideal. We're just talking about churches getting burned down, how shocking it is. Absolutely not good. I do not condone Alexander's actions, but this one event, it leads to him then in the 15th century becoming referred to as the Wolf of Badenoch. And that's how he's remembered. And I can't tell you, Chris, the amount of sites I've gone to in Scotland, whether it's Dunkeld Cathedral, whether it's churches in like the northeast of Scotland or Elgin Cathedral, um, castles where Alexander Alexander held during his tenure as Lord of Badenoch, where there's signs about him. 
and they're like it's all it's not even accurate history that's being presented it's just this vilified sort of folk tale about oh the wolf of badenov there's this whole thing about oh we died playing chess with the devil and people actually believe it they actually think it's history and it's like no like he didn't die playing chess with the devil like he wasn't this like, you know there's all these things saying oh yeah he had over 40 known illegitimate children like he did this, he did that. And it's like, there's there's actually no hard evidence for any of that. So it's this, yeah, just this total vilification of him as a character. When really, let's be honest, what lord in the 14th century isn't making use of military retinue, isn't using violence as a way of, you know, backing off the opposition, as a way of maintaining authority? A lot of them are doing it, including Alexander's opponent, Robert Stewart. He does the exact same. Um, so it's definitely he's definitely like a victim of the whole the winner's right history thing. His brother essentially wins, and there Alexander's called the wolf forever. I, my whole argument is he definitely would not have been as bad as we think he is, and I think it's crazy how obsessed people kind of are with this whole oh the most terrible man in Scottish history. There were definitely worse men in Scottish history, and for me, some of the things that Alexander does in the northeast. Robert the Bruce does the exact same things in the exact same part of Scotland. So, but one we love and one we hate. So, yeah. So I'm I'm very passionate about changing the narrative on Alexander Stewart, as you can probably guess. Pure ranted there for a little bit, but <laughs> no, it was a good rant. I liked it. I think, um, <laughs> yeah, it was good. You, you are very passionate about it, but it's a good thing to be passionate about. I I didn't really know that there was a as as much of a north south divide in Scotland historically. I guess that's me being very English, but yeah, it's interesting. Um, obviously, the, the 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 English North South divide. I'm I'm from the North. I'm very obviously from the North when you hear me talk. But yeah, I didn't know there was that much of one in in Scotland. So it's interesting that a very similar narrative is being used against the North of Scotland as well. Um, yeah, cool. No, I think that's a very a very valid trope to kind of squash there's so many of those isn't there? there's so many things in history like you take edward iii who is considered one of the if not the greatest king in english history he spent vast amounts of his reign you know committing all sorts of crimes in northern france and all this kind of stuff but because he ultimately won his part of history like you said it's 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 a clear you know the the winners the winners do write history. Uh, I do yeah, like Edward the Third, but you know it's it's definitely you have to be you have to be objective on on both sides, don't you? Yeah, you've got to acknowledge that you've got these figures that are like you know are presented as medieval heroes, but they also did like things really you know terribly as well and did terrible things. I mean, I think Edward the First is another great example of that. I think what's that book about him? Is it a great and terrible king? It's called or something. And I think that's like perfect he was an amazing king but he was also a terrible king like some of the things he did and you know in wales or you know scotland other other things like that it's but he was also an immensely powerful king and that you know really shaped english history it's the same in scotland robert the bruce he's remembered as this hero but you know some you know the the raids into the north of england that he conducted the uh, the thing in the northeast of Scotland is called the Hairship of Buchan. Essentially, defeats the Commons and then absolutely obliterates the northeast. And it's awful. It's it's you know it's what we would call a war crime that happens. But it's I think it's why it's so important to you know not revere these figures too much. Like you can totally 
like you know celebrate and appreciate their achievements but you've all I think as historians we've also got to remember okay well you know they also weren't that great at this either so yeah it's a really a really important one I think. Yeah I'm actually surprised Edward I didn't come up that much in this conversation because obviously he's a, <laughs> he's a massive feature in yeah. the Scottish Wars of Independence obviously he is incorrectly the hammer of the Scots didn't really do that much hammering um, but yeah a, another great example and that is a very very good book I think is it by Ian Mortimer Oh, we're making it up. Is it, is it Mark Morris? I can't remember. It's Mark Morris. Yes, it is. Mark Morris. I'm sorry, Mark. Um, yeah, it's a, yeah <laughs> a genuinely great book. And like you said, it's a great title and it's a great way to frame Edward I um, as yep. a great and a terrible king. Awesome. So just to wrap up, you have some great news. Um, let's be honest. You have a book coming out soon, which is published by Pen and Sword Books. Yep. Um, do you want to just give us a quick rundown on that? You know, when's it out? What's it about? If there is any doubt what that book is probably about. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, um, yep. So, book coming out with pen and sword. It's called Women in the Scottish Wars of Independence. Um, and basically, um, what I'll be doing is just presenting the role of women during this period in history. As we talked about kind of more at the start, it's there's an immense role played by women during this period, whether it's direct involvement in warfare, whether it's politics, you know, the, like dynastic ambition, all this sort of thing. Women absolutely played a role in this period. And I think it's really important that there's a better popular understanding of that. There's definitely big movements in academia for this period to improve the understanding of women. However, I don't think this is something that's translating to the popular understanding of the wars of independence. So I'm really passionate about sharing that. And kind of this month, actually, um, through March, I've been like, I'll be posting kind of every week about, you know, a lot of this will be to do with women's role during this period. And yeah, I just think it's important that people understand. I mean, the amount of people that where I say to them, oh, did you know that Robert the Bruce's sister was Queen of Norway and that his other sister defended a castle? People are like, what? Like, I don't know that. And it's because, you know, we're just taught about Robert the Bruce and William Wallace. We're not taught about, you know, their sisters, their daughters, their wives, you know, we're not taught about them. So I'm really, really excited to be getting the chance to, put that to paper and to yeah bring a book out with pen and sword so excited for it um i don't have a date yet and um, the manuscript is due at the start of november so as i understand it will probably be out in 2024 however i can't confirm that exactly um but that is probably the timeline sometime in 2024 i imagine it'll be available um but i'll be posting you know regular updates on my instagram page and um, any updates from the publisher i'll be posting as well so if anyone's listening and they want to keep up to date with that just give me a follow and i'll have all my information will be available about the book there awesome and we at the magazine will do our best to make sure we push that as well we are um well, thanks Obviously, you're a fantastic historian, but we're also good friends with Pen and Sword. So anything we can do to help, we absolutely yep. will. Um, speaking of your Instagram, I'm going to give you the floor for as long as you want now to talk and plug as many social media handles as you would like. Um, you know, if people want to find more history from you, where are they? Where are they going? Cool. So, yeah, so Instagram's definitely the main one. Um, so it's History with Beth, at History with Beth. That is my um, my handle. That's where I do, like, most of my posting, whether it's, you know, reels, posts, you know, stories, all that sort of stuff. Um, I've also got recently joined TikTok. So it's at History with Beth underscore. Um, so you can follow me on there if you'd like to see any more kind of, like, videos of, like, to do with Scottish history or just kind of Scotland in general. I'll post all that there. I also will have a website coming out soon. 
historywithbeth.com there's a running theme here History with Beth. that's just everything pretty much um, so I'll have a website coming out soon again keep an eye on my Instagram page and I'll announce when that is being launched and yeah hopefully hopefully see you all there whoever's listening awesome well thanks again Beth for coming on the podcast um, again Beth has a fantastic um, article in edition 13 of the Historians magazine which is all about um, noble women and the Scottish Wars of Independence I've purposely not asked any questions on it because I want people to go and read it. Um, <laughs> but that will be, that is available, obviously, to read for free online. Um, you can also sign up for our memberships. Um, and that is um, obviously international as well. So we are not restricted to the UK. Um, but yeah, thanks again, Beth, for being on. And thanks to everyone for listening. I will speak to you all again soon.